Welcome back to Joker Men. Uh, hi, Ian. How's it going? Yeah, you know, Evan. Uh, still, still alive for the time being. How are you? For the time being, I'm also still alive. Trying, trying um, to keep it on the level. On the level, yeah. The on the level mindset. Um, I woke up today with great news from Ian, um, who told me about the interview that Bob Dylan did with the. New York Times. Failing fake news, New York Times. It was just sort of a spur-of-the-moment interview. that He doesn't do those often, obviously, but um, it was honestly one of the better interviews I've ever heard or ever read uh, with the man himself. I loved it. It was, it was a pretty great peek into the mind of 79-year-old uh, 2020-era Bob Dylan because it seemed like the interviewer kind of just like let him go and like just you know didn't didn't try to lead him in any particular direction and he he gestured towards some of the social upheaval that's going on right now but for the most part he just let bob be bob and i think that's what you got to do at this point you know yeah it's a um an interviewer of great skill who was able to bring out the natural personality of the of the subject of the interviewee and um this was a, a great example of that where I guess they have a good relationship because it just seemed really natural. There's a, a thing early on where I guess they were talking about some of the issues happening today in this troubled day and age, and Bob Dylan is like, hold on a minute. And he goes into his trailer and produces a bunch of photos and uh, documents about the Sand Creek Massacre of 1864. <laughs> And uh, he says certain things in this interview that just seem like they could be lyrics in a song. Here's a good example. (laughs) I think about the death of the human race, the long, Mm -hmm. strange trip of the naked ape. (laughs) (laughs) He sounds, he he, he talks the same way that he writes lyrics for these these new songs that he's he's putting out these days. Like, it's like a... almost like a riddle kind of, or, or it comes from, from some sort of like Oracle like figure who, who is uh, uh, above and beyond us and like speaks with some greater, deeper wisdom that runs from, from ancient times. It, it, it's like a, uh, a prehistoric, uh, like subconscious kind of wisdom that, that he seems to be uh, espousing. He actually talks about, throughout this interview that his writing process has become something like that. He uses the word trance-like. He, he says that he goes into a basically a trance-like state writing these songs. And you listen to something like Murder Most Foul, and you can get that. Uh, <laughs> it seems to me like he's maybe kind of circled back around in his old age to the deepest depths of his inspiration that uh, put him on the map to begin with. Yeah, I mean it's it's interesting to see like how how trailblazing and and frighteningly new and exciting he was as a recording artist during the 60s or whatever. And now here we are uh, many many years on and he's like diving back into the past from before he re- he was even born mm-hmm. at this point. Like he talks about like jazz at some point in this uh, interview and the and the interviewer's like you know so do you, do you like jazz records or whatever and Bob is just like he goes what is jazz basically <laughs> yeah exactly he's reeling off like a zillion different artists all of whom could be categorized as jazz but come from decades and decades across the continuum I can't even imagine 
how he's acquired the the store of knowledge that he has. I mean, I guess that's what you get after living for eight decades on this earth, but he's like a holy kind of figure, the all-seeing eye kind of vibe. And yet very casual about it. Yeah, exactly. The very end of the interview is just a question about how do you stay healthy, Bob? He says that there's sort of a conversation between the mind and body and... Um, Nobody, you know, really knows why I'm paraphrasing, but he says, uh, I try to just to walk in a straight line and um, stay on the level. He's on the level and he's staying on it. Yes. Yeah. I, I really appreciate how like the, the key to his wisdom here or one of the essential parts that you don't get so much these days is like he knows what he knows and he knows what he doesn't mm. know at the same time right like he he, he literally i'm looking at it right now he says i like to think of the mind as spirit and the body as substance how you integrate those two things i have no idea i just try to go on a straight line and stay on it stay on the level in this day and age when there's so many fucking people uh, speaking to uh, mental illness and doing self-care to fix your problems and uh, all of these diets and stuff that are meant to adjust your internal body chemistry whatever people are always trying to sell you these definitive answers for these ailments that uh, that just the natural state of being in uh, in this sick society we've created for ourselves uh, uh, impose upon you and Bob is the smartest of all of them because he understands that there isn't there isn't really a, a bulletproof kind of answer. He's not going to try to bullshit you and claim that there is. How you integrate the mind and the body, the, the soul and the substance, uh, he doesn't really know. He's just going to stay on the level. Um, and I really, I, I dig that kind of honesty. Bob is honest. He is honest. And I do think that it is an overarching attitude that keeps me coming back to Bob Dylan as a figure, as a speaker, artist, Whatever he does, I'm on board because he does not pretend to have the answers except for the time yeah. when he was a born again Christian. And even then, <laughs> the, the spirit with which he did that, I feel like was we're all flawed sort of message. I mean, that's Christianity right. for you. Not one man is perfect. We are all humbled under something greater, which is um, really, I think, the, a sign of actual Wisdom is when somebody makes that a big part of their art and or their they know their place. Yeah, yeah, I, I see what you mean. Yeah, I mean the the Christian music that he was recording was not like Chris, you know, like um, Christian rock or whatever. Uh, you know, the, that kind of like creed sort of sense of it that you get. It I think it was. Uh, I think you're totally right. It was more based in like a uh, this this sense of morality and honesty. Um, that Bob uh, has developed over over the course of his life. And so even though obviously he was born a Jew, the conversion or, or adoption, whatever you want to call it, of the Christian values makes sense, not because he was necessarily looking to it from like a theological point of view, but just because the, the kind of person he was, the morality that he was trying to espouse, that that's what vibed with him. Yeah. Um, so it makes sense from, from like a secular point of view almost. I think anybody who's a serious moral uh, thinker does have to contend with what is there in religion that's worthwhile. I tend not to be swayed one way or the other by militant atheist types. Right. Maybe being a, an agnostic is um, the least glamorous thing to be, but uh, at least you're uh, able to stay on the level. 
maybe more more that way Ex- than any any other way. Exactly. Yeah. Whatever whatever helps you stay on the level, whether it's agnosticism or atheism or, or hardcore, hardcore religion. Yeah. You know, Anybody who can stay on the level, that's who I like, and that's whose music I want to listen to, especially. Yeah. What a man. I also really appreciate just one. We don't need to spend too much time uh, digging into this interview, but I do also appreciate this this other point that he makes here. The, the interviewer does kind of try to bait him into being this kind of crotchety old man, get off my lawn mm-hmm. kids, uh, asking asking if we're, we're past the point of no return in 2020, what technology and hyper-industrialization are, are doing to human life. Uh, it seems like he's sort of afraid to just, uh, you know, diagnose the actual ill, which obviously is capitalism, and he's kind of gesturing in that direction without coming right out and say it. But regardless, you know, Bob Bob doesn't fall into this role that the interviewer might expect him to play where he's, you know, talking about the kids these days and their trap music mm-hmm. and their TikToks and shit. He says, uh, there's definitely a lot more anxiety and nervousness around now than there used to be, but that only applies to people of a certain age like you and me. Uh, we have a tendency to live in the past, but that's only us. Youngsters don't have that tendency. They have no past, so all they know is what they see and hear, and they'll believe anything. In 20 or 30 years from now, they'll be at the forefront. When you see somebody that's 10 years old, he's going to be in control in 20 or 30 years, and he won't have a clue about the world that we know. Young people who are in their teens now have no memory lane to remember, so it's probably best to get into that mindset as soon as we can, because that's going to be the reality. I couldn't help when I was reading those last couple lines just to think that about how it is a literal restating of the times they are changing. It's just like you took it and put it into a word and and changed it with the thesaurus. But I do I think that's a great point, but it's 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 interesting. I think it again it like speaks to just like the the uh, honesty and fundamental decency of this guy because times they are changing. Uh, when that was written and recorded, you know the the times were changing because of Bob. He was he was part of the people that were changing the times, and he was excited about it. But here we are in 2020, and he's 79 years old, and he still recognizes that the times they are still changing. But he's no longer the one doing the changing. Oh yeah, uh, yeah. I think I mean there's so many amazing little gems in this interview. It's really rare to actually hear from an elder whose years seem to have added up to something bigger rather than just congealed into being like a bitter complacent person yeah yeah he could he could easily be fucking mike love or don henley or something but he's he's not he's bob he does not rest on his laurels and can't wait for that record to come out yeah there could not possibly be a better time or, or more necessary time for there to be new Bob Dylan music than right this very moment. Today, uh, I think we should just jump back into uh, the topic at hand, and um, that is going to be disc two of Self-Portrait. Yep, side C and D. So I... It's been a few days since we talked about disc one, actually, um, just for various reasons. Uh, life happened, as they say. And um, sure, I think that's actually a good thing in this case, because double album, it's it's a big chunk of of music. And honestly, I think for the first time I've I've been able to sit with it and to digest this record um, in a way that I really haven't before and uh Mm -hmm. that has meant coming to terms with a lot of different aspects of this album (laughs) including 
the fact that there seemed to be about four different albums happening on on this thing and you just see little bits and bobs of them there are some threads that seem to be pretty strongly connected there's others that are just tossed in there like a little break and don't have any sequel or follow-up there's the two tracks that have two versions each of them uh little sadie and alberta uh so there's a ton of stuff going on here, and I don't think that I'll fully get to the bottom of how I feel about the thing as a whole, and I don't know that it's possible to. Um, I think that this is a record that benefits from a kind of potpourri, uh, a kind of grab bag approach to listening that you can kind of take your time and find little bits that stand out better on their own than on a record, perhaps. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I know what you mean. I, I, it, it's definitely the kind of record that you come back to. You don't, you don't like master it, like, um, bringing it all back home, for instance, like I, I, I could, I don't know every single lyric necessarily of every single song, but I, I know exactly the direction each second of music takes from beginning to end side A to the end of side B. Um, like I've, 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 I've sucked everything out of that record that I'll be able to at this point. And, you know, it's still great to go back to and stuff. Uh, but there isn't any more discovery, I would say, to, to take place with something mm-hmm. like that. Self-Portrait, though, like is uh, like, you know, I, I've come back to it recently since we've been scheduled to talk about it. Um, and have found all sorts of new stuff that I didn't even remember or realize had been in there um, for my first, you know, set of listens however many years ago at this point, five, six, seven, eight. Um, it, uh, and, and I presume that I will, I will come back to it again five or six years from now and, and find more new little nuggets to, to unearth. Uh, yeah, I totally, I totally agree. It's, it's great to just kind of uh, revisit uh, throughout your life and, and find new new nooks and crannies to explore that you didn't realize had been there before. Yeah, it's a it's a very a hairy a hairy dog is that the phrase shaggy dog sorry <laughs> it's a it's a shaggy dog um, of of a, it's almost like a like a noir story where there's all these confusing little plots and uh, red herrings and and dead ends but you kind of have to take that as part of the experience and judging by certain little factoids that I've gleaned about this record uh, it seems that Bob Dylan potentially didn't have such a great understanding of the thing and what was going on either Uh, there's a lot of tracks on this that were recorded in New York and then overdubbed in Nashville. And he, there was a, a case of that happening where the overdubs took seven days and he wasn't even there for any of that. And there's, there's a quote about uh, the record that came from much later after its release in the 80s or 90s, perhaps, where he says that, um, oh, yeah, on that, that album... Um, self-portrait was being put together uh, while we were working on 
New Morning. Interesting. Yeah, I guess that makes sense, right? Because New Morning and Self Portrait both came out in 1970. Right. Um, Self Portrait was, yeah, it looks like June, and so New Morning would have come out just a few months later. Yeah, so there's some overlap, and I think you can hear or you can see just in a more focused approach on New Morning, which we'll get to next time, that um, right. this whole thing might have stopped being interesting to Bob at a certain point, uh, the whole self-portrait project. But instead of scrapping it, it, it's put out with all of these weird factors and, and a lot of people being involved and people choosing overdubs, choosing what to include and what to cut. And so you, what you're left with is wildly inconsistent, but uh, full of replay value. For that reason, yeah, that's 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 what you're here for. If you're looking for a consistent record, go elsewhere. But uh, self-portrait, you're you're meant to kind of struggle and um, meander and wander your way through, and be dissatisfied with certain parts of it, and then be pleasantly surprised with what comes next. Which, on that note, uh, you know, side C, I think starts with one of my favorite songs on this record, Copper Kettle. Copper Kettle. Yeah, Copper Kettle is a really beautifully arranged immaculate sounding song and it has that feeling of antiquity to it um it's a really homey visually uh stirring song about making whiskey um which uh i actually have in my glass some some whiskey right here that is from heaven's door bob dylan branded whiskey it, it's almost like he was uh, speaking, speaking it into existence, or, or uh, uh, prophesying it by uh, recording Copper Kettle in 1970, and then here we are. You're drinking uh, Heaven's Door a half century later. Yes, and it's quite good. Um, I actually, I like it. I like the Copper Kettle. I mean the uh, the Heaven's Door from perhaps a Copper Copper Kettle, kettle would have been Copper Kettle could have Copper Kettle. Well, would have been a better name for it than Heaven's Door, I think. But I guess Heaven's Door is more associated with them. Yeah, and Copper Kettle sounds a little, yeah, a little less grand, perhaps, than Heaven's Door. That is true. Yeah, this, that's a very um, set, setting high expectations for your whiskey if you're calling it Heaven's Door. Uh, but yeah, anyways, I mean, Copper Kettle, the song is is like, yeah, I think the arrangement is is beautiful. He's got the Nashville skyline croon going again. You have some gorgeous strings, and um, this song occurs to me. It feels like it's of a piece with all the tired horses and um, wigwam, which comes very close to the end, and even uh, ah. and also message to Mary. There is this batch of songs, this group that feel like kind of significantly more polished. I would also I would put Belle Isle p- perhaps in with that group. Mm. That they mm. kind of suggest that like a more cohesive, almost pet sounds like vision of this record that has like some more lushness of instrumentation these you know sweeping strings and a little bit more of a honed touch and uh they just end up mixed in with the rest but yeah copper kettle is a, a a fine dram of a song fine dram uh it's beautiful I, and I wonder what a like a full record with this vibe and mood, like you said, with all the tired horses and Wigman and Copper Kettle and maybe a couple of the other ones in there, Blue Moon too, which we'll get woogie to in boogie. a second. I wonder what that uh, <laughs> classic woogie boogie. Um, 
I, like I, I kind of wish I wish that that album existed where it was just all kind of complete and of a piece. But at the same time, if if that album existed and Self Portrait didn't, I would probably find myself wishing that something like Self Portrait did too. You, you always want what you don't have. You know, the thing is, I I've found myself pondering that. Well, if you can really criticize this record, and I think on the last episode I, I was being a little bit of a brat about it. The criticisms of this record, I think, ultimately do come down to a feeling of it being a little bit thoughtless in its presentation, because there's plenty of good material spread out over this 24 songs. What you can do at home is make a fan edit of, of <laughs> self-portrait and make your own self-portrait, and maybe that's a fun activity with um on spotify or 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 apple music or wherever you get your music you can um you can take a little tape recorder and record the record uh the vinyl record and then just put it in different order make your own playlist of these songs and leave out the ones that you don't like yeah yeah my version of self-portrait my personal version of self-portrait would just be uh woogie boogie uh, ten times followed by week. Well, what happens if you do that? You know, there's only one way to find out what that experience yeah, is like. Give it, a, give it a shot. You'll you'll achieve nirvana. And uh, the next track that we have aptly got to travel on because we got to travel on to the next track. Yes, this one. When I was listening to it, it made me think about the sort of meta Dylan that we sometimes get into here where I I felt perhaps that this lyric is something that he was relating to at the time of I've been around here too long I feel like I've got to move along move on yeah yeah it seems like he's he's speaking to himself from a few years ago maybe before he you know kind of split the scene and moved up to Woodstock to be with Sarah Um, you know that that was the guy that needed to travel Mm -hmm. on um, and and here he is uh, singing about that experience a few years down the line, presumably a little bit happier. Um, uh, when he's out of the whole, you know, hippie uh, shithead scene, uh, just doing just doing his thing. Um, this is another one of his uh, his covers here. This this side C actually is mostly covers. It looks like um, it's actually all covers except for uh, Quinn the Eskimo, uh, which is just a live version. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's it's a nice little nice little jaunt, but uh, not necessarily one of the ones that I would include on my own uh, your own self portrait. Although I guess I said, <laughs> I guess I said, like I said, uh, that would only be woogie woogie uh, ten times and wigwam at the end. Um, <laughs> uh, I think you are right about it being uh, covers mostly. Uh, that's undebatable. However. I do feel that most of the covers on this side, maybe not most of them, but a good a good amount, they feel a little bit more personal. Uh, I, I find them more charming. The whole second disc to me has a little bit more of a feeling of a intimate campfire performance where it's like he's just pulling these songs out and you're right there with him. And I especially feel that way about The Boxer, which is the next one. Which the first thing I felt when I heard it is, oh, I know this song. It's the boxer. <laughs> I think, uh, yeah, that that is uh, that is a fun one. Um, 
although I think we'll, we'll get to have an interesting conversation about that. Uh, but you're missing Blue Moon before we get to the boxer, which is one of my other favorite songs on this Oh, record. wow. I just skipped right on to the boxer. How can you how can you miss Bloom? That's like one of the that's that's one of the highlights here. Is it? I think it is. Do you disagree? Uh, let's look at my notes. I said kills momentum <laughs> a little, but it's nice enough. <laughs> ah, what a shame. I think I'm just I'm I, I'm I'm seeing that I really am just a sucker for the Nashville skyline uh, voice. So any song that he's got that vibe going on, I'm gonna love it. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean this. I think this version of Blue Moon, I think, is is beautiful and kind of hammy and stuff. And and here again, like we jump back to the more like lush, overtly produced kind of sound. He's got the uh, the backup vocals kind of cooing um, behind him. Right, um, the women return. And, uh, I suppose. Right, ex- we would group this in with the uh, all the songs with the the horse women. We could call them all the tired women. Sure. When they come out, the yeah, cowgirls. Well, horse women, maybe. Yeah, maybe cowgirls is better than that. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, I no, I it's like okay. this. It's okay to call them horse. I like women. this song as much as the next guy. I mean, Blue Moon. It's a classic. Um, I think if I heard this, maybe again at an earlier po- at a different part of the sequence. I might feel a little more enthusiastic about it, but I was just getting getting my rollicking spirit a pumping with "Gotta Travel On," and then suddenly it's a nighttime serenade. It is, I, and maybe maybe that's that's the dichotomy that we're going to end up establishing for this record. Is is you're you're around or you're down for the 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 jaunty campfire uh, rave em ups. Um, and and I'm more more here for your slow paced, uh, you know, honeysuckle ballad kind of thing. The honeysuckle um, campfire, yeah. calm them downs. Right, exactly. After after all the excitement's been had, but I, I think it's just it's really fun to hear Blue Moon, which is like you know uh, just a classic kind of uh, like big band uh, like Frank Sinatra kind of thing. Um, Recontextualized and sung by this, you know, the, the, as you've aptly put it, the Kermit voice, Bob Dylan, um, with this weird kind of Nashville, overly involved production behind it. It's um, it's it's just it's kind of like a um, what's the word, um, you know, a, a culture class or a, a collision of styles. Or it, it doesn't make sense. You don't expect it, but but it, it works somehow, and, and it really works for me. Maybe because it doesn't seem like it should work in the first place. You know, place. I actually was looking, after I, I heard this song again, I was thinking, did Bob Dylan cover Blue Moon again on one of the cover records, the American Standards? And did he? no, he didn't. But I had the thought that I would have liked it more if he had covered it recently. Like, I love that classic uh, songbook material, and I love his approach to it on Triplicate and so on. And um, this right. this song is actually you know it's it was written by Rogers and Hart. This is a, a, a song from 1934, so it's as classic American songbook as you can get. Almost there well, you go. It's right in there in that in that time frame that so many of those other yeah. tunes are derived from. 
Yeah. Bob is clearly kind of situating himself in this continuum of great American uh, singers, uh, not songwriters, which obviously is kind of the the inverse of the reputation that he had developed by this point, Mm -hmm. where he was a great songwriter, but, you know, people were not terribly fond, or some people would would have not been terribly fond with the kind of, um, you know, sharp um, uh, yelp kind of voice that he's got. so, so uh, in in that sense alone, he's just it, it, this is another fuck you kind of thing. Like, uh, you think I'm a songwriter, but I'm a singer. Fuck you! I'm gonna sing the hell mm-hmm. out of this song that was written by, you know, just some some random, probably uh, alcohol dependent sex pests. From, well, well uh, let's not 30s. say that about Rogers and Hart. They're some of the most famous uh, songwriters. <laughs> uh, but I do agree with you in, in the sense of it being sort of a a uh, braggadocious thing almost. I, I think that this whole record in a way is a covert flexing operation. You know, he was probably aware of bands like the Grateful Dead coming up and be being drawing these crowds and have being this hip happening thing. And so then you he's like, well I'll throw in some of these Isle of White tracks. I can carry a festival. And then he he knows other people are doing these sort of more lush uh, Baroque pop uh, operations. These these records like uh, the, the Beatles are, are doing their thing. And uh, so then he throws on all the tired horses and and some of that other some of the other tunes with that lush uh, copper kettle sound. And uh, then he's got a song like Blue Moon. He's like, I, I'm also a crooner. He's kind of doing a little showcase victory lap, which you could read as being very confident or maybe something showing a little bit of a brand reimagining uh, workshop <laughs> kind of mode. <laughs> he's he's all things to all people. Whatever whatever kind of Bob you want, Bob has got it. And He's also Paul Simon because we have the boxer uh, now after this yeah. one and um, after Blue after Moon. Blue Moon. And this song, this is the first time that we hear Bob overdubbed with Bob with two Bobs on the one track. And one track of Bob sounds like the Nashville skyline Bob. And he's sort of in the lead and then trailing alongside is that classic Bob Dylan sound, the classic Bob, Bob, Bob classic. And they're kind of doing this song as a duet between Nuevo Bob and ye old style Bob. Right. Yeah, exactly. The, uh, the, the country croon. And then the, as we termed it previously, the BDS sound, right? The Bob Dylan sound. Um, Yeah. Uh, yeah, that that is the fun part of this song, and and I I totally agree that it is. Uh, it, it's a great little trick that he's got, and I and I wish that there was more material like this where you could see in real time. Like here's 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 Bob when he gives a shit about sounding like a singer, and here's Bob when he's just sounding like Bob. Um, but you know, I've never I can't say that I'm a huge Paul Simon guy. No? So just seeing Bob, hearing hearing Bob cover a Paul Simon song like this, like I feel like he's. I feel like he's doing a disservice to oh, himself with this. Oh, come, come now, come now, Ian. <laughs> this this I'm is sorry. a great I'm song. Sorry. The 
It's a, you know it's a fun song. Uh, I I think some of it is depend like some of the song's effectiveness is dependent upon the production and actually yes. a lot of it is. Um, you know when you get to the lie lie part there at the end like w- without that kind yeah. of wall of sound yeah, you vibe don't get that, that, that they have on the actual that, record. That that beautiful yeah, exactly. echoey and yeah this this is I think that's where I really started to feel like a campfire review kind of energy coming from this because that's what you do around the campfire. You have your guitar and you pull out a song everyone kind of knows and it feels good. And it seemed that Bob was just really feeling uh, this one. And when did that song come out? Not too long before this. I was on Bridge Over Trouble Water, right? So that would have been 69, 68, Yeah, very like recent. And uh, yeah. that's kind of a big up to Paul Simon. I mean, if I was Paul Simon and then you have you put out your records. I mean, they're great and they're big hits, but Bob Dylan just also slotting it in next to blue moon as like something he would be interested in covering. That's, that's nice for you, Paul. Yeah. Yeah. It, 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 it must be a great honor to have, to have Bob deign to cover your material and record it and release it on his own, his own record like this. So, uh, for, for Paul Simon, I, I can imagine that would have been a dream come true, so to speak. But I just I, there, there's something like that doesn't make sense. Like hearing Paul Simon lyrics come out of Bob Dylan's voice, like it, like that's just not that's not who this is. It's not that's not the kind of uh, thing that this voice should be <laughs> really should be saying and singing. I, 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 yeah, there's just like a weird kind of like uh, mismatch between expectations and reality. Perhaps I I really like the Lila lies anyway, because those, those to me feel like quintessentially, um, Jewish in a way. Um, the, the, <laughs> that's a, that's a thing you do in, in the synagogue is a lot of Lila lie type singing. Um, interesting. Um, also if you're, if, if you're a destroyer fan, if you like the band destroyer, you get a lot of that. Um, that's, that is true. And, uh, something timeless and uh, perfect about, just a la la la. It is fun, I, and I see I see the campfire sing along vibe with it. I don't know. I just I, I I can't help but feel like you know Bob Bob. You're better. You're oh, better stop. Than this. You're, oh, you're better stop, than Paul Simon. Ian, you're better. Than, Paul Simon's a great uh, songwriter. Come come now, Ian. Yes. Yeah. Uh, well, I'll, well, well, we can save that for our discussion of uh, when we get to the Paul Simon podcast. All right. Well, maybe, maybe you can listen to uh, the original version of this and tell me if you still think it's a, a bad song. How about that? It's fair. I'll I'll, I'll get back to you. Pretty on that. good. Uh, the <laughs> the next song is uh, called Quinn the Eskimo. Quinn the Ian, please. Quinn, the Inuit person. Right, yeah. A lot of people, ha- <laughs> part, a part lot of people me. have covered this song, and um, when they cover it, they call it, they, they cover it as Mighty the Mighty Quinn. And right. uh, that's because I guess it's wrong to say Eskimo now, and I don't even, at what point in the song does that really need, does, do you need him to be... To, to use to say Eskimo I don't know it's they mostly just talking about how how mighty he is yeah I don't really see why 
the, how how Quinn's status as an Eskimo really impacts what's going on in this. Although song. it gives you an image, um, I mean, when I you're either does, yeah. you're either an Eskimo, an Inuit person, uh, I should say, or you're or you're not. And um, this song, I find it to be great. I think this song is great. Yeah, uh, this is definitely. I mean, this this is from the, this is another one of the Isle of Wight like live tracks that um, uh, that's on this record. There's, well, I guess, there's. Yeah, it looks like there's mm-hmm. four. Um, the first one having been the <laughs> the not particularly compelling uh, cover of Rolling Stone um, uh, at the end of side two. This one though, I think is is definitely a, a much much chiller vibe. Um, you know, he's got the band backing him. Although I guess at this point, would they have been known as the Hawks? I, I don't know. There's a very like raucous rock and roll, loose, good time kind yeah. of feel to this track that makes a lot more sense. Um, and it's it's shambolic and uh, sloppy and stuff, but it works with the Mighty Quinn much more than it does with. Um, with with like a Rolling you, you know, Stone, which I, is I was re-listening to that like a Rolling Stone just because you really slagged it off last time, and um, <laughs> I think that it that version isn't as um, it's not as sloppy as you made it out to be, but I think what makes me not like it is that it feels like such a smug like victory lap version of that song, <laughs> like it it right. sounds like he's just. He already knows the words are great, so he's he's not painting a picture uh, with the wor- words at all. He's just using them as fodder for his. <laughs> but this one, uh, that's that's a good impression. This one, on the other hand, thank you. This one, uh, it actually it it feels a lot like a what I like about say a Grateful Dead live recording. Um, it's got that. Just solid, good time, good vibes, almost like an Uncle John's band type of energy. Um, it's fun. And, you know, the the dead have famously covered Dylan a lot of times over the years throughout their career. But usually they're covering, like, stuff from the early years. The, a lot of the times when they cover Dylan, they'll be doing She Belongs to Me or something like that. But... This one feels tailor-made and even possibly like influential upon the dead. It feels like a dead song. Yeah, I I think I think you're exactly right about that, and I think that's why this like I vibe with this track way more than I did with uh, like a Rolling Stone, which um, you know I, I don't uh, I don't want to I don't mean to slag Bob too much. Any any slagging of Bob that I'm doing comes from a place of deep admiration, of course, and respect, of course. I love I I love the guy. Um, but, um, I, th- I think like part of what uh, doesn't do it for me on like a Rolling Stone, the version that's on self, uh, self portrait is like that. The, the recorded track is, is so like powerful and, um, like earth shaking to me. Like it, it's, it's, it's almost like, like, uh, it sounds like the voice of God or something. Um, like it, 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 it's the end of 2001 when it goes into Technicolor, like, it, you know, it's, it's, it's everything you could possibly want out of a, a rock and roll song and more. It's, it's, it's maybe the greatest song that's I agree. ever been recorded. Um, and, and so just hearing, hearing it recorded and presented in this kind of tossed off loosey goosey, uh, like you said, a dead sounding kind of vibe doesn't like, it just, it, the, 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 um, the power 
um, and presence that exists on the recorded version of that song is sapped in that um, in that in the in this live version that's on Self Portrait, um, and and so it, it's just a mismatch I think between the presentation and the material. But Quinn the Eskimo makes way more sense because like we like you just said, this is a much more kind of like chill, chugal, get down and vibe kind of sound, um, and they're just up on stage having a good time hanging out, and. Um, and and it's it's really fun and and sounds um, sounds loose. It sounds like the basement tapes basically. Yeah. And you've um, got Bob actually having enough fun that he goes guitar. He says guitar yeah. now. Yeah. <laughs> He's uh, he he sounds almost like a real showman for a second. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like you said, if we if we just want to dwell for a moment more on this Dylan and the Dead, wink wink. We're going to end up having to do that, you know, that live album. Um, yeah. Well, yeah, well, probably. We'll see. But um, the Dylan Dead convergence, if the Dead were, were doing like Rolling Stone and it sounded like the Isle of Wight version, um, that that sort of sound, I'd think this is a pretty good cover. But when you hear Bob do it, it, it seems like he's doing a cover of himself when, yeah, like you said, the original is just so fiercely embodied, and uh, it's a dime. It's a ten out of ten. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there, there are as as we've talked about, and as we'll continue to talk about, there are many Bobs that exist throughout, um, you know, throughout the history of Bob, and um, and we both share an appreciation for many of the later Bobs that have been maybe unjustly mm-hmm. ignored or or scorned by the musical press over the last ten, twenty, thirty years. Um, uh, but that said, I mean, some of the material from, you know, from the classic, um, you know, uh, uh, Bob period there in the 60s um, is still like it. it I don't know. It, it's, it's still it, it is what it is. And so hearing it um, uh, recontextualized and represented in this uh, through the lens of another Bob, um, you know, another side of Bob. Uh, if, if we want to. Yeah, thank you. I think you made the same pun. I, it it was the last episode. So just recycle. <laughs> you know, it uh, it just doesn't, it, uh, it, it doesn't vibe for yeah, me. But, um, but, uh, it, but this sound definitely can work and, and it definitely will work more when we get to the basement tapes. For sure. Um, and this is kind of a preview. Of these, these couple of Isle of Wight songs are, are a preview of, of um, the direction that he... Well, I guess he didn't even head in a direction because it was literally just basement. He wasn't planning to put that out when he was recording it. They were just And it out. was actually um, recorded before yeah, some of this, too. The basement tapes. Yeah. It's all uh, tangled up in blue, perhaps. Yes. But, uh, yes, now the basement tapes, we'll, while we will be covering it, later on because chronologically it was released after all of this after self-portrait and nashville skyline it was recorded in 1967 so there you go you you have yeah a lot of that informing all of this too which can't be understated just how the basement tapes and his experience uh playing with the band loosened him up and Maybe, who knows, maybe just hanging out with the band made Bob Dylan think doing this album was kind of a cool idea. Yeah, it seems it seems like the band's chill vibes definitely kind of got to Bob a little bit, but also Bob's, um, you know, artistic um, uh, aims and um, 
not I don't want to say pretensions because that sounds like I'm casting aspersions on him, but his his higher goals, I say, I would say, mm-hmm. uh, also propagated back to the band. They they reinforced each other and and uh, made up for each other's um, not weaknesses necessarily, but uh, the the areas that they weren't uh, practiced. In. Well said. The next track is "Take Me As I Am," which. Again, meta Dylan, meta textual Dylan. He's saying perhaps deal with it. <laughs> He's saying uh, I'm doing this now. Yeah, yeah. It's another um, uh, another one. Or we're going back to the back to the Nashville skyline crew. Uh, you, you really do. Uh, you know, by the time you get to this point in the record. Uh, you're starting to develop a sense of whiplash because he's jumping back and forth between, you know, the the produced um, uh, reverby vibe from uh, Nashville uh, into these, you know, raucous, rolling, chill uh, live songs with the band, and the kind of like, you know, tossed off little ditties and stuff like Alberta mm-hmm. or um, uh, Little Susie um, uh, or Little Sadie, excuse Sadie. me, not uh, Little Little Susie as uh, uh, Everly Brothers. Um, but yeah, I mean, we're, we're just, you know, he's, he's cycling back and forth between all these different versions of himself. And maybe, I guess that is, that's the self-portrait element here, right? Like he's, he's evaluating himself from all these different angles. Yeah. Or, uh, or he's saying, okay, if this is a self-portrait, I'm just going to show you that you don't know me. Yeah, there are, there are numerous, there are, uh, maybe not numerous, but there are several selves uh, uh, that he needs to portray. It's a trolling here. tactic. Uh, you, <laughs> yeah, this is my self-portrait album, the one that is the most yeah, about me. It's a it's a twenty-four song long shit post. It is, it is, but that doesn't mean you know it would be reductive to say that a shit post can't be uh, at times beautiful and insightful. Yeah, agreed. So what a what an innovator from the very from from the embryo he's creating new forms. Take me as take, I am. Take me as I am. Or let uh, me uh, go. Uh, 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 or let me go. Exactly. Um good vibes on this one, you mm-hmm. know. It, it it's another cover. It's the end of side C here. Um but um it's it's just got a nice nice little rolling lolling sound to it that's got it, it the title says it all really um yeah you know he, he 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 understands that what he has to say can be captured best uh by a song that he didn't even write so he could have he could have written a song that had these same kind of sentiments and same kind of message in it um and um uh, and you know plopped it out and it would have been a bob dylan song an original bob dylan composition um, but he understands that there are these these uh, bits and pieces from the the great American songbook, uh, to use a uh, five dollar term, um, that speak to his condition and his thoughts and feelings uh, just as well as anything that he could write on his own. Um, which I think kind of explains the impetus for for the covers that he's doing here, as well as obviously a lot of the covers on the more recent cover records. Um, yeah, it's 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 a nice one. Yeah, I like it too. Should we flip the record over one last On time? On side D, yeah, we've uh, we've come a long way here, um, and are are closing in on the end at this point. And our sights on the far horizon, we begin with 
take a message to Mary. And it's interesting that this last side of the album begins much like the very first one with that angelic chorus of horse women or cowgirls. Yes. Um, And they are introducing the song in this kind of strange brief way with the lyrics. uh, These are the words of a frontier lad who lost his love when he turned bad. So. Yep. This is also a cover uh-huh. This is yeah, also it's a uh, it's an Everly Brothers this cover. This is an Everly Brothers cover uh, again. So maybe the innovation here was just having the horse, the famous horse women. Now to, uh, do that little segment <laughs> of the intro. Yeah, the you know we're back we're back to this kind of like we talked about on the first record. Uh, in the last episode, this kind of cinematic widescreen vibe, uh, where these um, these this this choir of voices is is setting the scene for this, um, you know, uh, very dramatic kind of song and sound here, uh, which makes it funny that what follows is an an mm-hmm. Everly Brothers kind of trifle. Um, obviously, the Everly Brothers are amazing and and uh, formative in the entire um, you know um, uh, continuum of pop music. Um, but they weren't necessarily thought of for their deep lyrical insights the way that Bob is. Um, so setting up this kind of song <laughs> with that sound, I think, is is uh, is a bit of a wink and a nod yeah. uh, at the camera from Bob. And it, frankly, it's um, what makes for a good cover, I think, is doing something with a song that exists that either you elevate it, you put it into a a grander, you put it on a grander stage or a pedestal, or you subvert the grand nature of the original somehow. And uh, this one, I think, has um, a bit of the latter. It, it makes the song... I mean, the Everly Brothers, obviously, are were famous for very lush, pristine production. Uh, but this one, he really does give it his own spin and recontextualizes this song in line with the, say, the the Peaker-esque songs from, say, John Wesley Harding or even uh, In Search of Little Sadie, uh, we've got this character who the focus is on is now firmly on, thanks to the horse girls, um, that he... Horse the, women. Yes, that he's um, done something wrong and uh, needs to atone or something like that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this the 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 lyrical subject that's going on here fits squarely into the the same kind of concern that he was occupying himself with on John Wesley Harding with the the drifter and the hobo and the immigrant. Um, this is this is a a, a criminal who has uh, failed to um, you know meet his his beloved Mary uh, at the altar uh, due to the stagecoach that he um, uh, that he presumably robbed for some amount of money. Um, you know, another kind of tragic, uh, heroic, um, timeless American kind of figure, um, which, you know, makes it kind of funny that he's like, this is, uh, he's almost like indicating or, or now acknowledging where the inspiration for John Wesley Harding came from, but in a record that came several years later, right? Like, the, he's, he's writing these kind of, like, original Bob Dylan songs about these same types of characters that had been written about by these, you know, these professional songwriter types for the Everly Brothers 
um, I guess, what, a decade earlier at that point. Um, it's, a, it's a really interesting, like, uh, layers of an onion. Bob layers Dylan. of an onion, yeah. yes. They're, they're layers and of an here's onion. Here's another layer of the onion. Um, if you want to put on some eye-protecting goggles, uh, because the this this revelation might make you cry um no it's not it's not sad or anything it's just that uh this song reminds me very very much of thematically of another uh paul simon song uh wednesday morning 3 a.m where he's sort of got Mm. a you've got a criminal who sort of regrets his crime because surprise it actually it ruined his love life and that is a shame I see that. I'm going to respectfully decline from commenting because I'm I'm now adopting a firmly anti-Paul Simon status on this. This podcast. is the first big um, disagreement that we've had, um, and I I'm not yeah. even a huge Paul Simon head, but you 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 listen to Wednesday morning 3 a.m. Very fine song. Uh, in my mind, I'm just setting up. This doesn't even exist, but in my mind, I'm just setting up an, a dichotomy between the the precious twee uh, Graceland Paul Simon and the uh, the cool and calm and collected in punk rock Lou Reed, and saying I'm firmly on the Lou Reed side of this continuum. <laughs> Paul Simon is against everything. Oh my gosh. Okay, well, if we're going to call it like that, then I'm going to have to be on the Lou Reed side of almost every scenario. <laughs> Every possible pop. I, oh, actually, yeah, I don't like uh, ABBA because I like Lou Reed instead. That, yeah, that you know, that it that is that is a way that I thought about things at one point. I must well, admit. look, you could do a lot worse with a sort of fundamentalist approach to life than being. Well, is is this worse than Lou Reed, <laughs> or is it better? And <laughs> and you could end up probably that's, on the on the right fair. side of history most of the time. And you only run into trouble then when you approach a situation like, is it Bob or Lou? But we both know that those are that's the right. two types of music. There's Bob music Bob and there's and Lou. Lou music. And whenever I listen right. to too much Bob um, for one one sitting, I put on some Lou, and vice versa. You gotta balance. You gotta balance your chakras. Yes, yeah. I also like to listen to music by women. <laughs> the next song is. <laughs> Uh, speaking of which, a song which uh, I think Karen Dalton's version of is the best, and it's called It Hurts Me Too. Uh, I don't know that I've ever heard the Karen Dalton version. She's got a great, beautiful voice. Um, and this song also, surprise, surprise, it's a cover. Yeah, another one of your, uh, you know, your a blues standard. Classic. Yeah, exactly. Blues standard here. But uh, so, I mean, I guess Karen, Dal- a lot of people have covered this song. Um, the Grateful Dead have covered this song. But the Dylan version, what, what, what do you think of it? If you Were you not familiar with the other versions, the many that exist? Yeah, not really. I mean, a lot of the a lot of the, the covers and stuff that are on this record, I um, or the cover version songs, um, I I've have kind of just internalized them as Bob Dylan songs because that's where that's where it came like I I first encountered them in um you know a couple of them that's not the case like you know the boxer or whatever um I I understand it's a Paul Simon song and I think of as a Paul Simon song but uh, but a lot of these uh, Copper Kettle um 
uh, take a message to Mary, like we just talked about. It hurts me too. Um, and plenty of the ones on the first set as well, Alberta. Um, I forgot more. Than every more than every other song on this song. record. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, that yeah, is that is exactly. a great thing about this record. And if nothing else, say you really don't like this album uh, for you just it doesn't grab you at any point for the well, you're wrong. You're wrong. But also you accidentally learned about a lot of classic music by listening to it. And so. Even even this early on um, in Bob's career, we've got a serious chunk of what what you could call educational material. This music that it's it's about showing you stuff that goes back from way before you were born and way before Bob Dylan was born, and you actually do come out of this thing, whether you realize it or not, with a greater a wider perspective um, on the history of mostly American music. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, I, I think that um, at least I initially. I don't. I don't know how widespread this kind of assumption or insight has been uh, amongst other uh, Bob heads, um, but I at least have kind of, uh, or have until recently conceived of this latest turn in his career. You know what he's been doing for the last five, six, seven years, whatever uh, since Tempest, I guess. Great record. Um, have conceived of this is uh, it, it's <laughs> it is it is an interesting record. record. I'll give you that. Um, Great record. Um, I've conceived of this this latest stage of his career as like a new like a new direction that he's that he's been going in that doesn't really bear any resemblance or relation to what's come before. Or you know, it's the latest evolution or whatever, uh, which obviously his entire career has been a series of evolutions, one stage to another. But I, th- I think what, what I'm realizing now, or what I have realized now, um, by seeing this current Bob and, and then, you know, kind of taking a deeper dive into something like self-portrait, like this, he's, he's been doing the same thing for his whole, for his whole life, 50 years. Like, you know, he, he's, been, he's been reclaiming and reintroducing and recontextualizing these, uh, these uh, sort of like timeless traditional uh, songs of the land, these, these American folk songs. Um, as his own and, and introducing them to a captive audience that might not otherwise, um, you know, be, be diving into these um, these classics. Like I, I certainly wouldn't know um, know some of these songs myself uh, if Bob hadn't recorded them and made them his own yeah. and brought them to me. It's like he's engaged in some sort of like conscious project to uh, to connect pop music fans to to these progenitors of, of what's going on. Um, like an archivist or something. I was listening to an interview that Bob gave in 2006 right. um, around the release of Modern Times. And he was talking about how Robert Johnson died a couple of years before he was born, before Bob was born. And that the first time he visited London on tour, there was still rubble in the streets from World War II. There were still some buildings that were crushed from German bombs and talking about the immediacy of the past. He was saying that he can't help but bring that through, or even if he's not trying to, something of that comes through in his music and his work. He grew up when legends, they had stood just before. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, I mean, he really is like this kind of like missing link, the missing link mm-hmm. between the apes and the humans or whatever. Like Bob is that uh, between like, you know, the, the deep, dark past of musical history in this country and, you know, what's going on today. Like he is the one central figure that brings us from then to now. Yeah, that's a really good way to put it. And it, which, it makes it all the more interesting to think about the, the outrage when he went electric that maybe that there's something about who he was, who he, what he represented as as an artist as this sort of link between the old world and the new that people instinctively were disturbed by to some degree yeah there's there's a lot to talk about here that's that's why we have decided to start talking about it uh, even as the world melts down and uh it becomes clear that uh, everything that we held dear is being melted away as we es- well especially speak. At, at that yeah. point, maybe that's maybe this is the the perfect time. Yeah, I guess that's true to talk about BD. The next song, I'm sorry that I have to say this, but um, Bob Dylan is canceled for <laughs> Minstrel Boy. Uh, we can't. Yeah, I'm sorry. We're, we're done. We have to pack up the podcast, <laughs> and I think this will be the last episode because blackface is wrong. But um, Bob escapes narrowly from being canceled because this is not a song Bob Dylan wrote or whatever right minstrel boy is it is it not a song that bob dylan would write because according to bob dylan.com it was written by bob dylan <laughs> no 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 <laughs> and also according to wikipedia it was written by bob dylan uh um it's uh how many times has he played it live though? Uh, he's played it I'm tugging at my collar right now. <laughs> he's played it live once, August thirty first, nineteen sixty nine, which conveniently enough was the <laughs> recording that exists on this record. <laughs> okay. Bob Dylan uh uncancelled because um Seems like seems like he would be he more cancelled. <laughs> <laughs> Oh boy. Okay. Minstrel Boy. Uh, I end up thinking about this song a lot for some reason. I guess, I mean, the reason why is that this recording, which is, I guess, the only one that exists because it's not a cover, apparently. <laughs> um, and it's a live performance. Uh, it has great unison vocals and it sounds very committed. Um, the Minstrel Boy is a little boy in blackface. Is that what this song's about? Um, I don't. I don't think a minstrel boy would necessarily be someone in blackface. I think like a minstrel who's performing for coins. Guess what? Minstrel Boy, um, Bob Dylan, uncancelled, <laughs> because a midi- a minstrel simply means a medieval singer or musician, especially one who sang a related lyric or heroic poetry to a musical accompaniment for the nobility. The minstrel show, however, is racist. I see. Got it. All right. Well, thank thank God for that minor that minor distinction that you've informed us all of, because Bob, uh, you know, would have been would have been dangerous to have have to cancel him just a week before Rough and Rowdy Ways finally comes out. Eventually, we're going to have to talk about Desire, and um, there's a song on that where right Hurricane and yeah. Hurricane, a song which is absolutely anti-racist but features the n-word right um yeah people with uh bird brains would would probably find that offensive and objectionable at this point 
What do you mean by that, Ian? We'll <laughs> we'll wait until we get to desire. Bird brains is that? We'll 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 circle back to that one. Okay, Ian's on probation now. Ian's on canceled probation. <laughs> anyway, I like this song. I I actually really like it. <laughs> I love it now that I know that it's not yeah. um, problematic. And that nobody's going to be mad at me for saying that. I think it's a great uh, pr- live performance of um, a song which really showcases that Dylan, at least on this one, knew what he was doing at that Isle of Wight festival in front of some rowdy Brits in a field. Yeah, yeah. Uh, this is another one of the uh, the songs there, or the live tracks with the band, and definitely, once again, sounds the way this kind of thing should. Uh, and, and like you said, I think the the like the... I don't. I don't know that I would call it harmonizing necessarily because they aren't harmonizing the way the Beach Boys harmonize or whatever. Right now? Um, but do you think we could do it? Who's uh, <laughs> I think you could drop. <laughs> All right, no, we don't have to. Sing. I think you could drop in a sound club. I'll drop in a sound club. Um, yeah, it's just got a, It's got that nice kind of uh, like like you were saying earlier, the campfire, pull out a guitar, sing along, rootin' tootin' kind of vibe uh, that works for this kind of material. Again, because it's not it's not like a Rolling Stone. It's just sing, singing about minstrel boys who apparently are not uh, one racist minstrel boy who is a medieval character, and everyone knows that the medieval times were not racist. Not racist, correct. Um, she belongs to me. Uh, this is the next song. Well, it's she belongs to me. It's the song. What more can you say? Well, what more we can say is that it's another Isle of Wight cut. And I'm kind of bummed that there's not just an Isle of Wight album because at this point I'm, my curiosity is a little peaked about this whole affair. I want to just hear it. Right. But, uh, I think this one works a little bit better than, the Rolling Stone, uh, like a Rolling Stone from the same festival. I think that this one, it still does have that sort of victory lap feel of um, the, you came to see Bob Dylan, now we're going to do the Bob Dylan show where we sing the Bob Dylan songs. But right. hey, it's it's a pretty good performance of a country-tinged version of She Belongs to Me. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's nice. Um, of the four, I guess it's just four I Love White songs that are on this record. Like all of the ones that aren't like Rolling Stone, totally work. Um, I like this one too because you can hear like as soon as the crowd recognizes yeah. that he's singing "She Belongs to Me" at the beginning, there's like a big kind of like a round of applause mm-hmm. of, of recognition and stuff, which is fun to hear and and <laughs> reflective of even the current uh, experience of seeing Bob Dylan in concert because the songs are so undecipherable at this point that as soon as the audience catches one snippet of one lyric that they actually recognize a big uh, standing ovation goes up around the theater uh, because they realize they're listening to a song they actually <laughs> remember. So I guess I guess Bob's been doing that for his entire career. Um, but yeah, I mean this this again is this is uh, it's a great song, uh, one of the best ones from the first side of bringing it all back home, obviously, but not one of these uh, fire and brimstone voice of God kind of songs like uh, like Rolling Stone. Um, and so this this uh, this warm. Uh, liquid, uh, loose kind of uh, mood that he was in with the band on August 31st, 1969, apparently totally suits this song. And it's it's fun to hear these classics that at the time, I think, probably already would have been recognized as classics, um, but certainly, you know, 50, 60 years hence are uh, etched in stone at this point. 
it's fun to hear them uh, recontextualized and reinterpreted just a few years later. Yeah, I, I also love that moment when you hear the crowd recognize the song. And that's kind of one of the joys of any live performance is, is just that hopefully working where, where the audience is enthused enough to be right there with you when you just start the she's got everything she needs or once upon a time or whatever you're going to do. But no need to dwell on it. It's an old song from before our interest comes into play. Yeah, you can go read allmusic.com. Yeah, go watch No Direction Home, nerd. Um, Go watch (laughs) Don't Look Back. We're almost at the final breaths of this behemoth, this maze of Dylan. We're coming. We're coming in to the end. And we've got Wigwam or Wigwam. Wig, yep. It sort of reminds me of a, a Heroes and Villains by the Beach Boys. It's got that, or, or some of that stuff from Smile that's sort of like cowboy-themed chamber pop. I'm not sure if that's really what I would call the music of this, but it's got a uh, definite Western theme happening. No? Yeah, no, absolutely. With the, with the trumpets and stuff and the, uh, the strummy guitar and the, you know, the la-la-las towards the end, I described the end of Nashville skyline similarly I think but like you can you can just picture the song rolling as like the 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 western motion picture comes to a close and you you scope in on the the horizon and uh, and it fades to black and stuff like this is uh, another one of the uh, cinematic tracks on this record probably my my single favorite song on this album to be honest and the one uh, or yeah I guess the one that doesn't have lyrics because technically all the tired horses does have a lyric um yeah, I mean, it's just like, uh, I, I don't know, that, uh, I, I don't have much to say about it. Um, there isn't much to say about it because there's no, you know, there's there's not a word to it. Um, it just, you vibe with it or you don't, and I, I vibe with it. I also vibe with it. Okay. Would you say, well, what would you, well, I guess not on the note of Wigwam necessarily, but what would what would you say your favorite song on this record is? Wow, that's actually really tough. You know, I have to say, I think we gave short shrift to Early Morning Rain. I don't think it's my favorite mm. on the record, but I listened to it again on my uh, while I was on my run today, and I found it to be really pleasant. I really like the, the guitar in it, that, that sort of uh, nylon string, is it? It's sort of like a Spanish-sounding guitar. So that's really right. nice, but if I have to really think about my favorite song on the whole thing minstrel just kidding <laughs> <laughs> um i i think that this album is kind of a record that it's it's not a record that you should try to listen to as you would uh another album that you you just you know when you put it on you're going to listen a to b you're going to listen to the whole thing and enjoy it um but when I was listening to Early Morning Rain today, I felt really good listening to it. I really enjoyed how it how it made me feel. That's great. It, it seems like the kind of record that you come back to it over time and, and dig new things out of it. It seems like different times of your life as you come to it, you might have a new, a new different song that is your favorite at that particular moment in time because it speaks to something that's going on then. Yeah, absolutely. It contains multitudes, one could say. Ha-ha. Uh-uh. Ha-ha. Uh-huh. That brings us to, I guess, the very end here, right? Alberta 
Alberta too. It does take us to Alberta too. And I have to tell you something, Ian, I uh, really like Alberta two more. I was, I do like it more than the first one. Yeah. I think I, I realized last time I said that Alberta one was a preference of mine to Alberta two, but with a little bit more detailed listening, I would say between then and now, I, I would agree. I think I was too, I was too hard on Alberta two previously. It, it's a really nice note on which to end this record. Yeah, I, I think that it um, exudes a lot of confidence, this Alberta. And even though I don't love Alberta one, I think it's a great choice, actually, or a, a great. However, even if this wasn't uh, so much of a choice that was thought through, I think it works no matter how this playlist ended up. It's still mysterious to me exactly how this track list got to be the way it is. But Alberta 2 is like a way of saying, I stuck the landing. It's got a little bit more of like a self-assured feeling and it it cuts right. off pretty abruptly at the end. And it, it just feels like, well, we've spent some time with Bob Dylan off the record. That's how I would describe this thing. I see that. Yeah. I, I almost kind of think of Wigwam as like the end, like the actual end of this record, because it feels like a like the, the way that yeah, this album is booted. Definitely. This book ended. Um, like it just makes sense with all the tired horses at the beginning and then Wigwam at the end. But then Alberta, Alberta 2 is almost like a, uh, a, like a post-credit sequence in a movie. Right, like it's just like a little a little extra treat for you right here at the very end. That's not necessarily part of the the actual uh, uh, the document itself, um, but uh, you know you stuck with it through the through this entire thing, um, and um, and we're gonna give you a little a little peek behind the curtain, a little a little extra uh, nugget to send you off on home with. Thanks for sticking through this thing. Exactly. Thanks for thanks for witnessing my self portrait. Yeah, for bearing witness. That's what that means. Bearing witness to the album Self-Portrait. A huge undertaking to talk about this thing uh, in a way that we were very brave for actually doing. And if we made mistakes along the I way, agree. you know, okay, I'm sorry. But the, the, it's a we did our best. Yeah, you spend, you, you try spending three hours talking about Self-Portrait and, and see how it works out for you. Not to mention that Bob Dylan made some mistakes along the way making this thing. I'm not afraid to say it. <laughs> and, and, you know, in a way, I feel like I can be a little bit harsher on this one just because Bob Dylan's attention was elsewhere, it seems. By the end of this thing, even halfway through making the thing, he was already two feet and uh, his head were in in the new morning world. Yeah, I think any sort of criticism or critique that we levy at Bob for any of his materials, it, it's it's got to be it, it's taken on a curve. It's it's understood, or I hope it's understood. It should be it ought understood. To be understood. That, you know, it ought to be understood that we're doing it because we love Bob. And even the least successful, least compelling Bob record is miles miles ahead uh and so much more uh, impactful and important to us uh than any random record that comes out today whether it's a uh, a big time pop album or whatever i can't even say like whatever pitchfork's pick of the week is at this point because pitchfork's pick of the week is the big time pop album uh but yes. you know what i mean uh, bob bob occupies a special place in our hearts and our minds and our bodies and our souls and uh we're just keeping it on the level with him on the level Beautifully said. And I would just add that 
when you approach any of these albums, any of them, if you're listening to our podcast and it's made you curious and you skip ahead and you want to just sort of do your own exploration of the Bob Dylan discography, I think an important thing to do to fully enjoy these is to be out and in your car or walking around if you can and listening to them that while you're out and about in the world, because Bob Dylan is out and about in the world. And that's one of the things that I think lends uh, authenticity and life to so much of this music is that this guy has not stopped touring for <laughs> ever. One, 100 years. 100 years <laughs> he's been touring, practically. He's out there seeing America and seeing the world. And it's no doubt in my mind that that is a huge influence on the music he makes. And I think it's only enriched by you yourself, the listener, going out there and making those connections, listening to the self-portrait album while you're on a trail, listening to the self-portrait album when you're in your car on the mountain road, and listening to the self-portrait album when you are making supper at your home. Well said. Next time, uh, so say you finish your supper, you enjoy your meal, and you're dreaming about the self-portrait, what wakes you up in the morning? The it's new a new morning. morning. So. <laughs> <laughs> this has been Jokerman. 